So tonight I'd like to offer a stream of consciousness, mostly stream of consciousness, exploration of continuous practice, and within that, the theme of discipline. Some of us in Zen community of Oregon are engaged with this text by Dogen Zenji called Continuous Practice, Gyoji, and there's a large part of it where he is deeply praising all of these people who are really intense in their discipline. It has a little bit of like a macho spiritual fantasy thing, like people who, you know, eat one grain of rice a week and meditate for 23 hours a day kind of thing. And he's just so moved by people who have that, that degree of devotion, which can be moving. So I thought I would explore discipline. And in a way, I'm using the terms discipline and practice interchangeably, although they, they have their distinct meanings, meanings, and I'd like to unfold that. So there are two things I want to say to, to set the stage for this talk. I think you know them. But first of all, uh, practice is being and seeing this. It's being and seeing this. And those are simultaneous, or learning that they're simultaneous. This has infinite forms, because life has infinite forms. So I don't know what your this is. I could only guess. But practice is being and seeing this. In a way, being, being this is absorbing in this, because as we, we find, somehow we want to like drift apart from life. We have this tendency to want to live disproportionately in dream than in immediacy. Not bad, not good. So being this, and then seeing this, a little bit like the exercise we were doing where we were looking into the mind, seeing this and seeing through, gazing, gazing through the surface of things into what's, if anything, is behind the surface of things. Second preamble is that we are always at the horizon, the lip of the formless moment. We're always at the, the, the virgin emergence of the universe. We're always at there, but then something happens. We do something with our minds. Somehow that virgin moment, to one degree or another, is filtered through our, our body-mind and our patterning. But we're at this ungraspable emergence of, of the moment. So we're always being something, because you can't not be something. And we're always presented with this pivot of the response point. 
in practice, we are making more and more response point. So we can be, we can respond, and we can react. Those are distinct. I think you know the distinction between responding and reacting. But there's something that's neither responding nor reacting. So because of this, we're always practicing something. So Dogen Zenji is is using this phrase, continuous practice. We are always practicing something. We might want to make it conscious what we're practicing. We're always altering the universe. Now the universe can never be something that you don't experience. Because even if there's a universe out there, that's your experience that's happening in your own being the thought of the universe out there. So we're always altering the universe and we're always the prime recipients of how we alter it. So then, in that context, I want to talk about discipline. This this context of practice is inescapable. It's the most intimate I would put it this way. When I was younger, I used to sometimes rail at God, like, why did you create me? I didn't ask for this. Like, how did I get, do you have ever had that sentiment? How did I get, I didn't ask for this. How did I get cast into this universe? And it's a really interesting thing to unpack. But one of the things that was in that for me is a real sense of how much responsibility and how much effectability comes with the sense of being born. So maybe that's why there's even the concept of discipline, because how are we going to shape it? So the first thing that came to mind for me around discipline is is discipline as a skeleton. And if you think of, of the body, you can't, just have the juicy parts. You need backbone to have heart. You need something firm to protect the mind. Life has a skeleton. It's movable, but it's very firm. After everything else is digested by the earth, bones can remain for a very, very long time. And we get a hint of the shape that existed before. I love looking at the core dualities and polarities of life. And one that is at the heart of our practice is, and I should say seeming dualities, because right Zen is a non-dual tradition. We're orienting to go beyond these as ultimately distinct. But the core human duality of form and formlessness. We can't escape this dialectic of form and formlessness. So we may dream of a life of no constraints, of no fixed form. 
think that's a kind of primal fantasy to have a life where we can do whatever we want, no limits. Maybe when we were younger, we wanted to be able to fly or move through walls or stop time or it had a more magic quality. And then we might get over that and it becomes more rational. And we want to basically have no one tell us what to do, where to be, when to be. So no constraints is freedom from responsibility. This archetype of formlessness acts on us. We recognize formlessness. And we also recognize form. So we might try to manifest a life of no constraints, but the problem is as soon as you make a life of no constraints, that's its form. You see, you say, I'm not going to follow any rules. Okay, there's one. Or you try to make a life that's so controlled and firm and secure all threats to your stasis, you eliminate them, and you find you can't. You can't actually, form, form will not stay that way because everything is flowing. And your mind and perception are the most slippery and co-creative. So a skeleton is firm. It holds up our heart and our mind. You're not a jellyfish. Not to talk shit about jellyfishes. I'm sure jellyfishes are really great beings, but you're not a jellyfish as far as I know. You have a skeleton, you have a backbone, you're a vertebrate being. And that skeleton grows and shrinks, right? We know that over the course of life, it's altered by our posture. So life has a skeleton. At the very least, the basic human functions and drives form a kind of unbreakable discipline, like a primal human practice. Birth, breath, and death. You can't not do those. Everybody enters into that discipline. There's no way to get out of that. We might say the, the primal discipline of survival and mating. If one has the good fortune to get at least to the age, that instinct will act upon us in some way. Sleep, work, play, eat, repeat. So what I'm touching on here is, is discipline itself is archetypal. It's, it's universal. It's intrinsic to life itself on this very, very direct level. Now let me shift to um, sacrifice. Sacrifice, very beautiful word, to make sacred. How is that related to discipline? There is something that seems beyond outsmarting in spiritual practice that something has to be given up. Okay. It's not different than anything else. You know, you go, you go to grad school, you have to give something up. You have a child, you have to give something up. 
You want to be self-employed, you have to give something up. Sacrifice is, again, something that we're always in relationship to. But in the context of, of practice and discipline, it is demanded in a different way because you have to release control and identification with whatever you most control and identified with. Because in practice, we're trying to make space and see clearly the separate ego self. And whatever we are in identity with and whatever we want to control, that's what the structure is made of. So maybe for you, that's needing to be seen as the best ping pong player. That's like your big sacrifice because your identity, your sense of who you are is wrapped up in that. And the most potent thing for awakening for you could be to stop playing ping pong or to let other people win. Or maybe that's uh, identity uh, as someone who's always kind. So sacrifice is related to discipline in the sense that the discipline of awakening will ask us for sacrifice. It could be the activity that previous to practice we've used to avoid a full and round immersion in our life. That's what's, that's what's asked. The thing about sacrifice is that you do get something. You do get something. I think biblically, biblically, if you look back at some of the uses of the word sacrifice, it was an offering up to God, something that was precious. We don't have that theistic understanding in Buddhism, but whatever is clung to obscures it. it when a sacrifice is true, it's a freeing of energy and mind and expands that into a larger frame of reference. It's really a total exposure of oneself to oneself. So sometimes the fact of just taking on a discipline is the very sacrifice. I think that's especially true. You now I think about it, whether you go into a practice situation like a retreat or a temple or a monastery or in lay life, in order to do that, to take on a discipline, you have to make sacrifice. You know, and it kind of boils down really simply to that question of, well, is this valuable to me? Yes. Am I willing to make time for it? Hmm, a little bit. And right there is, right there, you're up against the principle of sacrifice. It's an intimate, it's an intimate navigation. So what I'm doing here is just coming at this from different angles, just touching on different, different aspects of sacrifice, excuse me, of discipline. So there's such a thing as natural inspiration. It's a thing, it, it happens for a year, a week, a life, 
And in a way, it's a mystery. When we're inspired, we might still have a, a skeleton, some shape that defines our life that can be seen or felt, but it's not something that we rub up against. I'll touch on it a little bit more later, but when there's discipline, if we choose it, it might not even feel like discipline. But when we feel like it's being imposed on us, we can feel victimized by discipline, and then it's hard. So our mind state changes depending on how we relate to it. Inspiration is an interesting thing to think about. You know, some days you're inspired to do your art practice or to show up like really fully in your relationship or to do a quality job at your work or to sit zazen, mustering presence. Sometimes you're inspired and sometimes you're not. And sometimes you feel resistance. So I wonder, is inspiration simply the absence of resistance? Entertain that. What if life's native condition was that you were inspired, that energy and motivation came your way? But it can't if there's resistance because that's tightening the hose. All the different forms of, of resistance. Inspiration, I don't mean like Mountain Dew inspiration. You know, like that kind of exaggerated American idea of inspiration that you should be totally keyed up all the time. You should be perpetually 20. They want us to drink that. We don't need to drink that. Not Mountain Dew inspiration, but a steady flow of energy and enthusiasm. What if that is what life is when there's not resistance? I don't know for sure, but I'm interested in that question. The ego sometimes tries to make a statement with resistance. Sometimes we resist as a protest. Sometimes that's conscious and sometimes it's not, but sometimes we go into a mode of resistance um, because we want to say this shouldn't be happening or I don't consent to this. It's kind of an inner, an inner protest. It has an effect. It may be actually a very potent effect in the external world. Another way of Exploring resistance is by being and seeing resistance from the inside. Because resistance is a locking up of energy. There's a lot of energy in resistance. I did a particular kind of work called paratheater, where we did a lot of embodied energy work. And it was a kind of practice where you exposed yourself a lot because you were really like touching into all the corners of the soul and embodying them and expressing them in public. There were other people who were practicing with you. And resistance would, would come up. And the thing this teacher had us do is when we felt resistance, we would amplify resistance physically. 
however that would be, you would express resistance so that you could turn the energy up so you can really know what resistance is. And when you embody, when you consent to resistance, there's something that opens up and there's a potent energy. In Zen, it's called becoming the barrier. It's a potent way to overcome our dualistic orientation towards things because we live in this world usually where we're just butting our head against objects from the outside. Whether that's my anxiety, my career, my busy mind, we're usually relating to it as an object, we're bumping up against it. And this is kind of radical, become that thing that's hindering. That's a deep koan. Shifting gears, uh, a very respectable Dharma teacher said, inspiration is no good. And inspiration is no good. Is if you rely on inspiration, then, well, you don't really have a, a mature discipline because basically you only do it because you feel like doing it. I like to say that our practice is uh, maturing when we do it, whether we feel like it or not. That's a discipline. Now, I don't mean you never don't do it or you never don't feel like it, but I mean, let's say you have a regular rhythm, you don't feel like doing it, you still do it. It means you're no longer a victim of inspiration. Mary Oliver, the great Mary Oliver said, poetry is 85% editing. She's not always inspired. But inspiration, inspiration plants a seed for discipline. It gives us the reason about why we, we put ourselves into a, a form. So what if we revision natural inspiration as a receptivity to like a universal ebb and flow of interest and disinterest? Like sometimes we have to apply our will and engage our tasks and callings from the standpoint of I have to engage my will. Just like not that many people are super excited about leaping out of bed early in the morning. You engage your will. That's just a truth sometimes. And sometimes we're carried in a current. We're filled with a vital breath. We're inspired. And in a sense, discipline disappears. It doesn't feel like discipline. Some of the most disciplined people... Oh, there's a funny thing. Kaz Tanahashi, who's a wonderful translator and artist and friend of, of ZCO, he'll often have four or five book projects going at a time. And Chosen Roshi asked him, how, is he, how does he do it? How is he so disciplined? And he said, no, I'm just lazy. He's just lazy. He just allows the flow of interest and disinterest. And because he doesn't resist, it happens to be that the proportion of interest is a lot more and more potent than the disinterest. And so from the outside, it kind of might look like there's no discipline. And maybe he doesn't experience discipline, but there is some pattern there. 
discipline often brings with it for people just the very concept, all of the dirty fuels. I heard this from, from my friend Joe Mon, a dirty fuel, and I think it's a really helpful concept. So what are the dirty fuels for discipline and practice? Of course, as soon as you say dirty fuel, it's easy to lose sight of. The dirty fuel can become a clean fuel and vice versa. But some dirty fuels like shoulds. Shoulds can be a dirty fuel. But it could be that, you know, your therapist says you should meditate. You hate it. But her should floats in your mind. You do it for long enough. And before you know it, you're super inspired and it's no longer a dirty fuel. But the dirty fuel of seeking worthiness. The dirty fuel of avoidance. Or penance. Maybe you hit the cushion every day because you're bad. Like, and in your mind, there's like this kind of Roshi floating, you know, hitting you with a stick, telling you you're bad, so go meditate. And you meditate, you feel a little bit better. So you're doing your penance. Your fuel could be competition, actually. It's interesting. There were times at the monastery where I competed with people to see who would meditate the most late into the night. I was in my 20s and I had a lot more testosterone. So it goes somewhere. But right, all of these actually, so I, now as a teacher, people say, well, I'm competitive. I'm like competing with people and they think it's something to be ashamed of, but I've actually seen that it's okay. You're still doing the practice. It's still, it's still sustaining your discipline and something good will eventually come out of that. You know, the fool who persists in their folly. So there's a dirty fuel of being so motored by the goal that the process is devalued. Like living for point A and point Z. And think of what are your point A's and your point Z's. The two points you live for. Like point A is where you're at and point Z is where you'd like to be or the positive experiences, and then everything in between is burned up in distraction and hope. It's just like fodder for point Z. I think that's a, I think that's a dirty fuel. But again, it's hard to say what's what. Discipline, as I was saying, might drain energy depending on how we view it. So if we view it as it's being imposed externally, then it tends to drain energy. We tend to rebel. The rebel in us at some point says, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. But if we, are con- if we continue to choose the discipline we've taken on, it energizes and supports rather than oppresses. There's the whole thing of form and formlessness and how that interplay is always, always alive. There are clean fuels for discipline. What are the clean fuels? You know, it was harder for me to find clean fuels in the dirty fuels. So I think that says something about my practice. I need to, I need to find like more, more clean fuels. 
There's something about balance that may make it clean. There's something about where intention springs from that can make what fuels our discipline clean. There's something about bodhicitta that is almost mystical. Bodhicitta discipline. It's funny, every time I say that word, it's still lands in my body as something I don't like, like discipline. Even though I'm trying to give a well-rounded presentation of it, I'm I'm just noting that. Discipline can be fueled by bodhicitta. In a way, bodhicitta is a discipline itself. It's the orientation of what's more important than my happiness is the happiness of the infinite beings that exist, who a large amount of them have it worse than me. And I want to give them the deepest gift that I know, whatever that may be for you at the time. That's that's bodhicitta. And it gives energy by freeing energy from self-centeredness. And somehow energy from the future flows back to the present. The very intention in a larger scope of time, people are helped And therefore, it comes back around. So, people who really live with bodhicitta tend to be joyous and bouncy. A good deal of the time. Discipline has its flavors. Perhaps the why I still cringe every time I say it is I'm thinking of like stern father archetypal energy. The stern father energy. It's non-sentimental. It's toughness. It's the ability to harness will and make boundaries. It's got something of kick the birds out of the nest way of seeing things. It's like um, Saturnian energy. Those of you who are familiar with astrology, every chart has Saturn somewhere. And Saturn is the energy of discipline. And wherever it falls in your chart is the area of life that you're going to have some issues around discipline. The thing about a birth chart is that everybody, it shows up somewhere. Discipline has a role in every life. It's there in some form, whether you engage with it or not. Not engaging with it is just a different relationship with discipline. So that stern father archetypal energy I mean, in some sanghas, that's exactly what's celebrated. It's so easy to, especially in our bringing consciousness to the negative effects of patriarchal orientation, it's so easy to look askance at this, but non-sentimentality and toughness and the ability to harness will and make boundaries, that, if you don't have that, then you'll be out of balance. That's, that's a necessary part of, that's part of the skeleton. And of course, there are other approaches to, there are other flavors. We would say if the nurturing mother is archetypal, discipline can have the flavor of encouragement, of seeing what's working rather than what's not working, of finding the soft within the hard rather than just amplifying the hard.
In the continuous practice fascicle, Dogen Zenji has a lot to say about asceticism, as I mentioned. He was kind of a hardcore monk. He was, as they say, a monk's monk. And a lot of monks love monk's monks. And so it's like this feedback thing where you kind of get, the more monkish you are as a monk, the more monks think you're a badass monk, so it amplifies your monkishness. Probably true in lots of other kind of situations. So asceticism, though, do you know what asceticism is? Yeah, asceticism. Now, in Buddhism, actually, the Buddha taught something like the eight dutangas, I think they're called. And they're practices he recommended to people to work on their reactivity and to strengthen their practice, taking on difficult things. So in a sense, it's strongly tightening up the boundaries of your activity so energy is more concentrated. It's inviting discomfort to amplify intensity. But it also has a beneficial effect. An ascetic discipline invites discomfort and eventually the rigid parts of you soften. So people who've done, um, especially a Japanese style Zen retreat, it's very rigid. I think we slept three hours a night. It's very rigid. And the idea is that you become too exhausted to be rigid. And so you melt within the very form and it really tenderizes the heart. So sometimes asceticism, especially if it's someone is really, really rigid, it's actually necessary or one of the most potent means for that nurturing mother energy, let's say, to come into their life. I bet lots of parents have experienced this. There's so many, there's so many ways this can be, can be experienced. Astrology was on my mind, and um, I thought of the cancer archetype, the crab. And the crab has a hard shell and has deep, tender sensitivity within. And they both have to be there. You can't just be totally exposed, bleeding heart to the world. That doesn't work. You can't just be hard. That's hollow. So it's something to consider when you think of a discipline from the outside. It's really easy. Or someone who's disciplined. And if you're in a complicated relationship with discipline in your own life, when you see someone who's disciplined, you usually think, man, that lady's uptight. She's way too serious. But something to consider when we look at a discipline or a way of being from the outside is that we see the hard, but within the hard is the soft. Or within the firm, there's the yielding. If we don't engage these, they'll find their way into our lives in some way. So I want to talk on discipline and practice as a rhythm. Think about it as a rhythm. Think cosmically. The breath has a discipline. There are different variations, but essentially there's only three things it does. It comes in, it goes out, and eventually it stops. There's the heartbeat's discipline. Think of the orbits of the heavenly bodies as a discipline. They keep doing it. 
Gravity, as far as I know, will always operate on planet Earth. Life and death are forever alternating. The seasons are a kind of discipline. Think of uh, nature's discipline. Every season, winter does winter. There is some variation, but every season, winter does winter. Every autumn, leaves fall and pumpkins are harvested. I don't know, maybe with climate change, there'll be this really weird autumn where leaves don't fall off the trees. That, that would be really scary. But I think it's going to keep happening. It's the discipline, it never changes, and yet it's totally different. The very same thing, because it's the same thing, within that there's tremendous nuance. And we say this fall was like that, and that fall was like this. We have our disciplines for engaging and enduring the seasons. That's a discipline everybody takes on. We have our our practice of getting through the cold and bearing the heat and enjoying the spring. There's something wonderful about the choicelessness of that. There's a, an, an inwoven birth-given spirituality of weathering the seasons of life. So I want to close with some questions. What is the discipline you already live? Assuming it's already present. What is the discipline you already live? Where are the rhythms? And what are they? What's the flavor of your approach to practice? Do you need more or less bones to protect its heart? Is there fear about inviting discipline? Why? That fear might have a particular genesis. What's the relationship you've had to discipline historically? What's the relationship now? In other words, is there some influence acting in you from the past that's unrelated to the actual rhythm or vessel of support that's being considered in real time now. What do you want to be a practitioner of? As I started this talk, we're all practitioners constantly. There's not a choice of whether to have some practice But with consciousness, we can make our practice a conscious choice. There's no not having a skeleton. So I hope in some way I've sparked some some curiosity in you or teased some things out in in your practice life.